Good afternoon and welcome to Salford. How are you? Are you okay? You are. It's Thursday. It's five o'clock. It must mean the Richie Allen Show. Indeed it does. Welcome. Drop me a line during the programme. Please, please. It's richieallen.co.uk. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show. Live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, a little bit later on in the program, Sonia Elijah will be back on with me. She's really cool. Had her on the program a couple of months ago, really enjoyed her company. She's a really good journalist and broadcaster. Sonia has been looking into something. Do you remember a few weeks ago, not even a few weeks ago, lots of over-the-counter cough medicines were suddenly withdrawn from UK pharmacies. Remember that? There's a story there. Sonia's on it. We'll talk to her about that and more in the second hour. Before that, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party, David Curtin, is back on the show. Love having David on. Always interesting. Never dull. He's always got an opinion. We'll talk about lots. We'll talk about Partygate, maybe, the committee hearings yesterday. We'll talk about Ofsted in schools. We'll talk about ULES. We'll talk about lots. David Curtin, this hour. That is Thursday's programme. It is March 23rd, 2023. Yeah. BDBDD, and it's the Richie Allen Show. Lovely to be with you, to be with you all together now. Lovely. Yeah, I'm in good form. Third anniversary of the first COVID lockdown today, three years ago today. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Uh, good God, where does the time go? It feels actually like an age ago. So that's a contradictory, isn't it? It's either one or the other. But uh, it does feel like an age ago. And at times, I think the time has gone very quickly. More on that in a moment. March 23rd, 2020. I won't subject you to that audio that everybody is playing today. Johnson talking three years ago about flattening the curve. I won't do that to you again. It might trigger you might bring back some very bad memories. More on that in a minute. Uh, Bar- Boris Johnson was in front of the Privileges Committee yesterday, three and a half hours. Did he know that his parties at Downing Street were contravening the COVID social distancing rules, the lockdown rules, that he himself had a big part in creating? Was he lying to Parliament when he said he didn't know that he was in breach of the rules? Did he lie while believing he was telling the truth? You just don't know, dear listener. I think there's only one thing for it. Let's break out the fartometer, which is the most sophisticated state-of-the-art lie detector ever devised. In fact, I was given it by DARPA. Regina Duggan herself FedExed it to me from Uranus. So let's check that the fartometer is in working order. There's only one way to do that. Let's turn it on. It's a great lie detector. Let's see. So here we go. I, Richie Allen, I'm a beautiful man. Someone women find irresistible. It's working then. It's absolutely working. Let's see how far we get with Boris Johnson giving his evidence to the committee, as they say, in rural Ireland. In rural Ireland, they're, un- they're incapable of saying committee. The committee. Are you on the committee? I'm on the committee. I'm on the committee. Are you on? I'm on the committee. That's right. Let's hear Boris Johnson. Let's see how far he gets. This is the very, 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 very beginning. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give 
for this committee should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So yep. help me God. Yes, there you have it. So there's no point in playing the next three and a half hours of it. He was lying through his teeth. Let's leave it there. Johnson is not the only leader or former leader having a bad week. Nicola Sturgeon's not having a great week either. The wicked witch. Ding dong. The witch is dead. She's not dead now. She's not dead. Her career is dead. Nicola Sturgeon, a.k.a. Jimmy Cranky, has darkened Holyrood for the last time. At least as First Minister. Anywho, she's finished. Soppy speech she gave this lunchtime, her final speech as First Minister. Let's catch up with a little bit of it. Did she have anything interesting to say? Presiding officer, as I come to the end of my last speech here as First Minister, some final reflections. To my colleagues across this chamber... Robust debate and holding government to account are the hallmarks of what we do in here. That is as it should be. And let me thank those in other parties for that. But maybe, just maybe, we might actually enhance our democracy if occasionally we, all of us, treated each other with kindness too. If we remembered that we are opponents, not enemies. Jesus. And to my successor, next week we will find out whose portrait will go alongside mine on the stairwell of Butte House. Subject next week we'll find out whose portrait will go alongside mine. Right. Subject to this chamber's approval, it will either be Scotland's second female first minister or the first from a minority ethnic background. Either way, that will send the very powerful message that this, the highest office in the land, is one that any young person in Scotland can aspire to. Because it's very diverse. And the final comments from Cranky before she departed. And it is now to the people of Scotland, all of you, whether you voted for me or not, that I reserve my final words from this seat. Thank you so much for placing your trust in me. Words will never adequately convey the gratitude and the awe I hold in my heart for the opportunity I have had to serve as your First Minister. It truly has been the privilege of my lifetime. And with these words, Presiding Officer, I draw it to a close. Yeah, piss off. Do you remember the vehemence? Do you remember the glee? She cackled that creature with glee throughout 2020 and 21. Every time she took to her lectern at Holyrood to introduce new draconian and completely arbitrary regulations. That little skank cackled with glee, didn't she? Didn't she? Laughed at uh, ruining people's lives. Now she's gone. Sadly, it's not as if all of that nonsense will go with her, but she's gone. Yeah, she's gone. Cranky is gone. Uh, let's talk about something else. Um, new segment for the programme. Introducing a brand new segment. And I'm just simply calling it Madness. Call it Madness. Brand new segment. First up, a man has won a female cycling race in New York City. 46-year-old Tiffany Thomas, who was born male, 
and still is, took first place at Randall's Island Crit Cycling Race, blowing the competition out of the water in the process. I'm reading from the New York Post. Taking to Instagram following his latest triumph, Thomas said it was a great day to play bikes with friends. Honest to God, you're a big hairy man. You've just beaten a load of women in a bike race and you take to Instagram to say it was a great day to play bikes with friends. Thomas works as a lab director, according to his Instagram, is described in his LA Sweat team profile as a scientist by day, athlete by night. Shall we have one more? Have we time for one more madness? Madness. Madness. They call it madness. Yeah, we have time for one more. USA Today has included a man in its Women of the Year list. (laughs) Minnesota's first transgender lawmaker has been named one of USA Today's Women of the Year. State Representative Lee Fink, or Finky, was honoured alongside the likes of Michelle Obama, my God, Goldie Hawn, and NASA astronaut Colonel Nicole Mann. Now those are, well we know Nicole Mann and Goldie Hawn are women, the jury's out on Michelle Obama. Uh, Lee Finke is definitely a man. Finke who transitioned in 2017, transitioned is basically code word for putting some lipstick on and a bit of makeup and a dress. Uh, He admitted today that the hate has increased exponentially after being named as one of the women of the year. Well, they call it madness. More madness on the next edition of the Richie Allen Show, children. The time is 10 minutes past the hour. Good to be with you this particular Thursday. Let's be serious for a moment. We mentioned the third anniversary of the first lockdown, the imposition of the first lockdown. Madness. They call it madness. Remember Carl Hennigan? We like a bit of Carl Hennigan. We've had worse than Carl Hennigan, haven't we? He is a critical care doctor and professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford University. He's a qualified man. He spoke with Julia Hortley Brewer on Talk TV this morning and he said we need laws to prevent lockdowns ever happening again. Well, it's interesting. I read that and, re- and actually did the same, Julian. There's a statement in there where it says we will beat the coronavirus and we will beat it together. Well, actually, if it had changed the word beat to catch, it would have made much more sense. We will catch the coronavirus and we will catch it together and then we'd have had a sensible plan. But I think the key point here is it is three years. Everybody, it's one of them landmark points in our lives where you think, I can remember what I was doing. But hasn't three years gone so quickly? And this is the key. In my lifetime, I do not want to be locked down again. I want to maintain the quality of my life. I want to have choices, just like they did in Sweden. If the risk is high, I'll, I'll, I'll make changes. But actually, we want to go about our business. Life is short. It's about the quality of our life. And so it's key to us that actually going forward, we now have an inquiry that sets out laws that prevents a few people having serious control over our lives. And that is crucial, isn't it? Laws that prevent a few people having serious control over our lives. Enter Julia Hartley Brewer, who just cannot shut up and listen to the experts, has to interject. 
Is it interesting? Because a lot of people will say, like, well, it doesn't matter that Boris Johnson and his team had cake or did or did not eat cake, did or did not have drinks, did or did not think the rules were again, you know, uh, mm. being broken or not. The thing I find... This is a very hysterical and unnecessary intervention from a sedentary position. What are you talking about? Let him get on with it. He was talking about making laws to prevent this ever happening again, woman. What's frustrating is that people say, it's all over, it's done, doesn't matter. But, but of course, your concern is, and, and my concern is, that this will happen to us again. Lockdown is now seen as a, a normal part of the toolkit for dealing with a crisis. Um, when we point to the facts and figures, the evidence, and countries like Sweden, people seem to say, no, 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 that's, that's, that doesn't help, that's no use to us. Why do you think the example of what Sweden did does matter and should we should pay attention to it. Professor Hennigan? really matters. In the absence of Sweden, every single politician in the world would have stood up now and been saying, we got it right, based on modelling, largely modelling. But I also say to those people who think, well, it doesn't matter, it's all in the past. I was at a school yesterday doing a talk and the teacher said to me, the children coming to A-levels actually didn't sit their GCSEs, they had two years out and they're really struggling. I met a parent who said my three-year-old spent the first two years of their life thinking that, looking at everybody as though the world wore masks. Yeah. You think of that in the formative years and you say about the economy, imagine if we said today we had 370 billion to spend, what we could do with that, how we could improve society. We could have amazing things happen in this country, yet we blew it all and a lot of people did very well and what we created is this big bubble problems in the supply chain and now we're facing the consequences and this could be for a decade to come. A decade to come. Consequences. Yes, he said that before, has Carl Hennigan. Um, 3% of UK families used a food bank in the year to March 2022 and that is according to official figures. This equates to just over 2 million people. This is not media. Most of what you read in the media is nonsense but this is true. This might be underestimated. In fact, I speak to people around Salford, particularly around the precinct area, and I ask about these food banks and how, you know, numbers of people coming to food banks are growing and growing and growing. You might say exponentially, and it is happening. So two million people now need to to use a food bank at times to subsidise, to supplement their weekly shop because they don't have the money. Now, that's 3% of UK families in the year to March twenty two. Uh, March 2022 but the figure rose to about 1 in 9 or 11% for families who receive state income related benefits. It's the Hunger Games Society as David Icke dubbed this some years ago. Now when you place that story alongside the Refugee Council which is an organisation which looks out for the rights of refugees it isn't anti-refugee nor am I I couldn't possibly be anti-refugee or anti-asylum seeker. Anybody who has a legitimate claim to asylum, who's fleeing tyranny, who's fleeing oppression, you've got to look after people. That is what Jesus would have done, right? Those of you who believe in Jesus, it's often the people who say they believe in Jesus can't wait to get rid of people without finding out whether or not they actually have a legitimate claim. That's an interesting aside, maybe, or maybe not. Anyway, why is it relevant that so many families are going to use a food bank? Well, the Refugee Council, which looks out for the rights of refugees, did a, um, an enormous amount of research. And in last Sunday, Sunday Times, uh, the Refugee Council said that over the next three years, this government will spend a minimum of £9 billion 
housing and feeding people, human beings, whose claim has been rejected. Not people who have been given the right or given leave to stay, but people whose claim has been rejected. That's an astonishing thing. You'll spend nine plus billion pounds on housing people who do not have a legitimate right to claim asylum here, and yet people in this country who live and work here, many of them do work, they get benefits on top of their work because their work doesn't pay them enough, doesn't pay them a living wage, and they're going to food banks. I think that's an interesting story. It's uh, Thursday's Richie Allen Show, coming up for 17 minutes past the hour. I found this very interesting. You'll know that earlier this week, Baroness Casey published a report into the Metropolitan Police. And she found that the police was institutionally misogynistic, racist and homophobic. Institutional, she said, the commissioner, Rowley, or Rowley, disagrees with institutional but took on board everything else that she said. So this has rumbled on as the week has gone on. Now, Timothy Brain is an ex-chief constable. That's a pretty lofty position. Gloucester Police, I think. He was on LBC Radio with Sheila Fogarty today and it was kind of interesting. Listen to this guy who's a former chief constable. His name is Timothy Brain. Reform of word. Ah, hang on. What am I doing here? Have I messed that up? I have. If an officer was accused... Yeah, hang on. Let me just uh, bring that up again. I've made an absolute bags of it. Right, let's try this again. He was on with Sheila Fogarty today. When you were Chief Constable of Gloucestershire Police, uh, if an officer was accused of misconduct towards a fellow officer, female or otherwise, or domestic abuse, what did you do? What happened? This is a really good question, right? This is at the heart of a lot of what has gone on in Casey's report. So police resources are finite. When somebody makes an allegation against a serving police officer, when a woman makes an allegation against the serving police officer, what should happen? Should the police officer be stood down immediately? What should happen? This guy's answer, I think, is kind of interesting. Listen. Well, there was an assessment um, of, uh, of, of, and I, I actually dealt with this as a deputy chief constable. Um, that's, that's the role of, or one of the many roles that a deputy chief constable has, is to make the initial assessment um, in cases such as this. You have to make an What did you assess? You have to make an assessment on the seriousness of the allegation, the strength of the evidence, and you've got to be fair to the individual against whom the allegation has been made. Because now, that sounds pretty reasonable to me, what he just said there. You take it seriously, but you've also got to be fair to the person who is accused, because as of yet, they haven't been found guilty. You've got to have a good, hard look at the evidence. This sounds pretty reasonable. Because it is not unknown for false or exaggerated allegations to be made against police officers. Again, reasonable. It happens from time to time that somebody makes a false allegation. So you have to balance the evidence. And there is a crucial question. So you wouldn't be in favour, would you, of automatic suspension? There is a suspension. crucial question. There is a crucial question to be asked, which is, <laughs> is there... A She's laughing at him. I find this kind of extraordinary, really. She's laughing at the guy. The guy's a former ex-chief... Excuse me. He's an ex-chief constable, a former... Deputy Chief Constable, excuse me. 
and he's laying out this thing about, right, allegations are made. They might very well be true. We don't know they're true at the moment. You've got to take it seriously. Also give some thought to the accused. Have a good look at the evidence. It has happened in the past where somebody's been falsely accused. She thinks it's funny. A crucial question to be asked, which is, <laughs> is there a safe alternative? She's a real wench, this one, Fogarty on LBC. Duty for this officer to perform. Those are the regulations. Those are the steps you go through. Right, so you wouldn't be in favour of automatic suspension if somebody's accused of sexual misconduct. Or God, God, she's useless. Didn't listen to a word he said. Domestic violence in, in the force. I think there's, that would amount to a fundamental denial of natural rights. Well, teachers and are suspended if they're accused of harming a child. I think you've asked me my opinion. I've just given it. So you didn't quite say no, so it's a no, is I, it? I said it would be a fundamental denial of natural rights. That's my answer. And if a teacher is accused of sexual abuse of a child... The engineer at LBC Radio, they obviously got them from a pound shop. It's a pound shop engineer. The levels are all over the place. It isn't me. It's LBC's crappy engineers. That's why there's a huge difference in the audio level between her and the guy she's interviewing. Apologies for this, but this is interesting. They should stay in school. You have to talk to education specialists about that. And that's a different matter from the one that you just raised with me. I've given you a perfectly clear answer. You don't have to accept it, but there it is. I accept it. I'm just challenging it a little bit. So you, you don't seem, given what we just heard about the Met, uh, you, don't, you don't seem to think that an allegation against a male officer is serious enough. Just an allegation of misconduct made by... He an... never said that at all, did he? You can manufacture something out of the words I've used. You've heard I'm not. I'm genuinely not. You're very suspicious of me. I'm I've genuinely used. not. Right, a little bit more. You keep restating it in another way. I actually prefer the version of the answer that I gave to you, and there it stands. I, I, it's just a long time since I've interviewed such a bad-tempered man. Um, I'm not bad-tempered at all, but you've tried to interrupt me several times. I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation with you. You've tried to interrupt me several times, if you've just done again. <gasps> And then you've actually tried to manufacture a form of words. She's laughing and clapping now. This is a very serious subject. You know, what do you do when a police officer has been accused of misconduct? And then the most, I suppose, the most dreadful type of misconduct is sexual misconduct. What do you do? The guy's been trying to give her an answer and she's just laughing in his face. This is journalism in 2023. Um, if I were a deputy chief constable and one of my officers was accused of sexually assaulting a woman. I can't imagine why any woman would make that up. It, you know, a woman who doesn't know him. I can't imagine that. So you'd be inclined to take that very, very seriously and at least put the guy behind a desk where you can keep an eye on him. I think he made that point as well. 23 minutes past the hour. Don't forget Sonia Elijah on the programme a bit later on. David Curtin on the show before that. Lots of uh, stories and stuff on richieallen.co.uk, including that Greta Thunberg... Oh, go on. Will I? No, I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't be childish. Greta Thunberg is to um, apparently, allegedly, sue the Swedish government for climate change in action. This was something that happened late yesterday afternoon. Watch that one closely. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? The children or the young adults of any country taking the government to court for failing to act on, on climate change. Keep an eye on that one, I think. What else is there for you? Um, London's theatres all 
London theatres all gender toilets leave women uncomfortable. The Lyric Hammersmith. I visited the Hammersmith many years ago, many, many years ago. It's been criticised for leaving female theatre goers uncomfortable due to gender-inclusive lavatories in consisting of five urinals and one cubicle. In one toilet in the venue, women are expected to walk past a bunch of guys standing up, whizzing into the urinals while you walk past them and go to a cubicle. This is Joan Smith, a member of Sex Matters. The advisory group said she was left feeling incredibly comfortable after using the all-gender lavatory at London's... What is it? Lyric Lyric Hammersmith, it's called, these days. That is on richieallen.co.uk. Your uh, messages, your comments, please, to richieallen.co.uk. Live comment at the top of the menu bar. When we come back from this, it's George Benson. It's David Curtin, former teacher and the founder and leader of the Heritage Party. David is also a former member of the London Assembly, 25 past the hour. I worked with a, a brilliant radio presenter in Marbella many years ago. His name was Sonny. And Sonny was a black man, a very well-travelled man. He travelled all over the world. And very funny guy. And we at the station were given tickets to see George Benson one particular night at a venue in Marbella. And Sonny was absolutely thrilled about this. And he says to me, right, you're coming, aren't you? You're coming. Now, I had another engagement. And I said to him, no. But I didn't explain I had another engagement. I said, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to see George Benson. Well, he properly flipped out. How could you not go to see George Benson? That's a good question. It's 29 minutes past the hour. My first guest is no stranger to the programme. He's the founder and leader of the Heritage Party, a former member of the London Assembly and a former teacher. He's an all-round good guy. Let's welcome back to the programme our friend David Curtin. Welcome back, David. How are you? Thank you, Richie. I'm doing really well, actually. Thanks for coming on again. I know you're busy, mate, so I really appreciate it. I don't know where to start. Let's start with something a bit silly. Very briefly, because I didn't mention this in in the rundown of things we might talk about. But um, we giggle. Guys like to have a laugh and take the mickey. But when we see women in New York losing a bicycle race to a bloke, and when we see USA Today naming a man as Woman of the Year, it's, it's manna from heaven for guys who think they're funny like me, who are not really funny. But... It's serious, this, isn't it? This is not really a joke. This has serious implications for women. Well, you know, people used to make jokes about this kind of thing. You know, uh, there was a series in the 90s, everyone knows the friends, they used to make jokes about, you know, going out on a date and then bringing them home and as, oh my gosh, they've got male anatomy or something like that. They probably use better words than me because that didn't sound that funny when I said it. But it is serious these days because women's sports, women's spaces are being taken over by men who want to say that they're women and then compete and then win because they do especially you know we've got these cycle races but it's even worse if you get men competing in combat sports like boxing and like judo and so on because they can totally destroy a woman and actually cause really serious injuries so you know there's got to be a limit to this there there, there's a time you know there's up to a point it can be a joke but it's gone way way beyond that now i totally agree with you yeah it has Absolutely. Now, yesterday afternoon, Boris Johnson spent three and a half hours in in front of the Privileges Committee and the committee is looking into whether he 
knowingly lied to Parliament when he said that he believed the parties that took place at Downing Street in 2020 and 2021 were were right and proper, that they weren't in breach of COVID regulations. What do you make of... To me, it's a massive big circus. On the one hand, it's ridiculous and it's kind of like a deflection away from the really important issues. On the other side, I can't help but be aware of the fact that the country is completely gripped by it. Did you give it any attention yesterday and what are your thoughts? You know, to be honest, I didn't look at it at all. I had far better things to do with three and a half hours of my time yesterday afternoon. I know the media people are talking about it because that's the big thing in the media circus yesterday and today. But honestly, it isn't going to make an awful lot of difference to where we are now. It's going and looking back at things that happened in 2020 and the beginning of 2021. And, you know, Boris Johnson clearly... misled somebody you know we because he's obfuscating he's going around the houses and using the difference between rules and regulations and guidance and the question is did you break the rules did you break the guidance what was the guidance on this day was it different to what it was on the next day or we had a party this day when there was only guidance and not rules but then the next day there was rules and the guidance had changed and there's all these kind of technicalities but at the end of the day the most important thing is they are made these tyrannical lockdown rules and got everybody shut up in their houses and and set the police on people for talking in a park or walking their dog or meeting more than six people or having a cup of coffee or going to church. But they were just having a nice time in Downing Street, not worried about a virus or anything at all. I mean, there was no question about whether Boris Johnson and his people were scared of a deadly pandemic, which the fear was being whipped up at the time to get everybody to be frightened and stay at home and be frightened of everybody else. There's no question of that. So, you know, it's really a moot point that it's not of much interest whether he broke the rules or the guidance. The fact is that they had imposed tyranny and they were flaunting that themselves and they weren't worried about it. Well said, David. And there's only one, I've only seen one commentator who really understood that, and that is Will Walden, who uh, was Johnson's press secretary for a time. And he told Sky News this morning that what Johnson did yesterday was, if this, this is a quote now from Walden, effectively admitted that he didn't really believe in his own lockdown. Now, that's a stunning bit of information, or it should be for our media in this country, but they kind of refuse to pick up on it. You, you nailed it beautifully there. Everybody else is having their lives turned upside down, their businesses wrecked, when it's obvious that they weren't remotely concerned about it. So what's really going on? That's what the media should be doing now, isn't it? Well, why wasn't he scared of it? Yeah. And you know what? The other thing about this, this kind of circus that is going on now, is it's trying to get everybody back into the mindset of 2020. And the angle that it's being reported on uh, is that there were these rules uh, which were completely justified and 
did Boris Johnson break the rules or did he break the guidance? Didn't he do what was terrible about that as though that was what he should have done? The fact is, as you say, nobody is turning it upside down and the right way up to say there shouldn't have been any of these rules in the first place because they're repugnant to our fundamental freedoms, our human rights, our common law. I mean, they go on about the European Convention of Human Rights but it was totally useless. They completely broke it in its entirety during this two-year lockdown period. And then also, you know, later on, trying to get people injected with experimental mRNA and so on yeah. and uh, get people thrown out of their jobs. That all came later. So it's going back to this psyche again. And it's very interesting because it is the third anniversary this week of the start of the lockdown. And it's just an interesting thing that they're doing this on this week. And it's going on on the very day, the very anniversary of the day that the lockdown was announced. Um, so I wonder what that's all about. You, you don't believe in coincidences. And, you know, you are a popular guy and you'll meet plenty of people. And I think no fault of your own, but you'll meet supporters. So they will feel as you do and as I do. And that's a positive thing. But the media reports, now I know we don't believe the media, but um, I can kind of buy this, that around about 53% of people who have been surveyed recently, they happily accept a lockdown again if the government was to, to announce the existence of a new pathogen. Does that concern you or do you not believe that? Do you believe that at this stage now people would say absolutely no way? What, what do you think? It's really hard to know whether polls are accurate or not, because sometimes they are done with very, very good statistical methodology, and other times they're pure propaganda, and you really don't know which is which. But I think now that the whole party gate thing has come out and people know that the people who are making the rules weren't worried about the rules. Um, they are going to be far, far more reticent to follow any kind of lockdowns that come up in the future. But there are still a hardcore of people who still believe that it was the right thing to do and who still would do it again. Um, because there are some people who just think, uh, you know, they're in the mindset that they trust the government, they trust the mainstream media, and they don't believe that they would lie to them or do anything so terrible as to deliberately destroy society and the economy. They just can't get their head around it. But you and I can see it. I mean, you and people like you are the real media because you tell the truth. I mean, the legacy mainstream media, we can put them over to the side in another box and they're losing people every day. So as that process goes on and people come to you know, people like you, um, there's more and more people who are not going to be influenced by the fear mongering and the psychological pressure that you get from them. But there are still an awful lot of people who still get their news from the BBC and the Daily Mail, etc. And um, that's the filter through which they see the world. Um, so, yes, there are those people and uh, we just have to carry on trying to wake them up one by one, bit by bit. David Curtin is the leader of the Heritage Party. Go to heritageparty.org. David is also a former teacher. Now, Ofsted, for our listeners, is the Office for Standards in Education. It basically 
um, grade schools. It's responsible for making sure that schools are up to scratch. Now, this week, um, a big, a big scandal, I suppose, or or a big kerfuffle, as we might say. Um, one particular head teacher refused to allow an Ofsted um, inspector into her school, and this is to do with a head teacher who took her own life sadly after her school, which had an excellent Ofsted rating, was given an, in, an inadequate one. No better man than you to talk about schools, David. My knowledge of this is very, very, very small. I find myself when I read the press and when I listen to interviews on the radio, I find myself sympathising with teachers and head teachers. It seems to me like the way Ofsted goes into schools and grades and 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 and, and uh, decides whether a school is doing well or not is is a very blunt tool. It's not sophisticated in any way. You've had experience with this. Is Ofsted a good thing, the regulator for schools, or is it doing harm to teaching and to teachers? When I was a teacher, everybody dreaded an Ofsted inspection. They were absolutely hideous for all of the staff, uh, particularly the management and if you were a head of department, etc. I, I have actually had an Ofsted inspector in my classroom and, you know, I, it, it was very, very uh, a nerve-wracking experience. Unfortunately, I did a lesson and it went well, but, you know, they might come and see you just once um, over a week and you don't know when they going to come they come into your class they sit up at the back they look at everything you do they take notes um fortunately i was doing kind of a, a lesson with all of the right things it hit all of the right notes that you have to um hit to get a good rating for teaching and learning um but you know the, the kids can mess you up <laughs> yeah. I, I remember in my my ofsted um lesson I actually had some really nice kids. I was I was in a, teaching in a school in Hertfordshire at the time, and uh, I was doing the lesson. And one of the kids at the end, they said, "We really like your lesson, sir. We learned so much, and Brilliant. it's fun too." <laughs> and it was, well, that was so sweet. But they could they could say the opposite. Someone could go, "Sir, I don't understand. I don't understand. What's that?" Yeah. And if they do that, then you just get a negative rating on the clipboard, and they put it all together. And then it's you know they they have incredible power over the schools because at the end of the day they give a rating and if they give a rating of inadequate that means the school goes into special measures um the senior management team can be fired and replaced in some cases and they bring in uh, you know a team to sort it out and and uh, fulfill all the requirements that Ofsted has for schools um according to what they are at the present moment so it's terrible it's it's absolutely awful for schools it sounds um, awful can i ask you a question on that it's been said to me and i don't know because you know what why would i know i'm not a teacher it's been said to me that ofsted is really about privatizing education it's about you know moving schools to academies is there any truth in that do you think I don't know because they was going. It's been going on for forty years, and you know, I I worked in uh, state schools. I worked in independent schools. They they you know you, they came to independent schools as well, and it was still nerve wracking when they went there. I mean, I I think it's more about imposing um, the woke agenda and cultural Marxist values on schools. And you know what people don't understand is that teaching has been changed so 
much. The culture of schools has been changed so much over many, many decades. I mean, when I went into school, um, when I started teaching in, in the 1990s, um, it was already changing from a focus on teaching to a focus on teaching and learning. Um, and then it's moved on to a focus on safeguarding. But what people don't understand is that safeguarding now can mean, does a school teach transgenderism and safeguard and affirm children if they say that they are gender diverse or something? And if they don't have a policy to affirm children in their new LGBT identity, whatever that is, then they're not safeguarding the children and then they can get failed by Ofsted, something that was never even uh, in anyone's minds 40 years ago when it started. So it's changed uh, because as time goes on, we have the long march through the institutions. You have a Linsky activist going into education, into schools, into Ofsted itself, into the local education authority, um, advisory positions, and they're changing the culture of education. It is a tool to change it and to change the values and the principles and the ethos of schools. So it's in line with liberal leftism, essentially. Now, has Miriam Cates, the Conservative MP, thrown a spanner in the works? She's gotten the Prime Minister to announce a review or to launch a review into relationship and sex education curriculums in... That's not the plural of curriculums, is it? It's curricula, is it? I can't remember. I should know. Um, but but um, she wanted an inquiry, which I think it merited, but uh, Sunak wouldn't acquiesce to an inquiry and he said right we'll have a review are you happy about that because I'm no prudish you know Mary Whitehouse type person but when I read what they're saying to children under 10 under 12 in schools it does horrify me so is that a good thing Miriam Cates do you hold any hope that the government might take a grip of this and take it seriously yeah, I mean, just just to come, first of all, you know, the things, the materials in schools are absolutely abhorrent and are quite shocking. You'd be really shocked. Um, you know, the, the children are being taught about self-stimulation and touching, sexual touching uh, at the age of five. You know, it, it's not like just teaching reproduction at the age of 13, which is yeah. what I used to do. Um, so it is a good thing, in essence, that you have the Tory MP there, Miriam Cates, saying there should be an inquiry into relationships and sex education, but I don't hold out much hope that it's going to go anywhere at the moment because the majority of what I call the fake conservative party are fake conservatives. They're not really conservative and they want relationships and sex education and they want uh, LGBT and explicit materials to go into primary schools because they think that that is um, inclusive and diverse and so on. They don't have the same values as you or I or, you know, a lot of people who think traditional family values, well, you know, or even just that children should be children and they shouldn't be exposed to sexual content in primary schools. And, you know, what's age appropriate should really be age appropriate. You, you just let kids be kids and don't impose adult ideologies on them. So, you know, it's good that one or two speak out, but there's a vast majority of MPs who are going in the opposite direction. So until they all get swept away, 
um, in hopefully in the next election and we get some decent MPs that are on the side of families and real safeguarding for children, then it, there's not going to be any change. Let's see how the review, I mean, I, look, I, I would be as sceptical about the review as you are, but let's see what comes out of it if and when it happens. David Curtin is our guest, heritageparty.org. Let's talk about London for a moment. The Metropolitan Police, Baroness Casey published a report earlier this week and, and in it she said that the force is institutionally mis misogynistic, homophobic and racist. The commissioner, Mark Rowley, I believe his name is, he accepted pretty much all of the findings apart from he didn't agree that the problems are institutional. Now, you know the city as well as anybody I've ever had on the programme. In your opinion, is the Metropolitan Police institutionally misogynistic, homophobic and racist? There are lots and lots of bad policemen. Um, there's no question about that. And um, But I don't think the police force or whatever, police service, whatever it's called at the moment, is institutionally racist, homophobic, probably transphobic as well, and misogynistic, because the report was commissioned by Sadiq, Sadiq Khan, I think. And, um, you know, obviously, that's the narrative that he pushes, not just on the Metropolitan Police, but on everything in the country as a whole. And people who take that point of view, they want to ruin the nation by continually accusing the nation as a whole and the institutions within the nation of these things, racism, homophobia, misogyny, so that they can bring in change. And they have change agents to be put in management positions to change the procedures and the culture. Uh, and then what you end up with is a, is a workplace where no one is allowed to say anything which is a personal opinion or maybe have a joke or a bit of a bit of banter or let off steam. You see, you know, when you're on the job and it's a stressful job and this could be the police or it could be anything, you have a bit of a joke about stuff and you let off steam. And what you might say, you know, you might have a joke and it could be offensive to somebody who hears it. Yeah, of course, a lot of jokes are, a lot of banter can be offensive to a person who doesn't know the people who are doing it and doesn't understand the context and the situation. But then to level this accusation, so then you you deliberately change the culture and then sort of come in with rules and say, if you say this or if you have this attitude or even if you post something on social media that we don't like, you're out of a job because you're misogynistic or racist or homophobic. I mean, that is really tyrannical. And, uh, Can I interject there? Do you, do, you mind, do you mind if I interject there? I yes. don't disagree with most of that, if any of it. But I've had a good look at this myself because I would, would see things pretty much like you and I would express that on the show and then be thinking to myself, well, you've got to kind of a dogmatic, kind of a single-minded approach on this, have a look. So I've had a look, right? And it seems that over the years, there has been a huge increase in let's just say, terribly inappropriate behaviour by male police officers towards female members of the public. And I'm, again, coming a lot of the time coming from your way of seeing things. And I know there are those who want to exaggerate and they want to gaslight the population and tell them. But I think there's a, there is a real issue, I think. I mean, 
bizarre stuff, you know, texting women that you've gone around because she's been assaulted or because she's had a burglary or, or something like that. This sort of thing is going on. And I, I'm, I'm wondering why and are there recruitment issues? Are there problems with um, police in the, not, not the police, but the instructors, David? Like when you've got these people in the, I don't know if they're called police academies, but when they're training, are they not looking out for those men mostly who are inappropriate to be, shouldn't be police officers? I think where women are concerned, I think there's been a lot of bad behaviour, I think. No, I, I totally would, would agree with you with that, which is why I said at the beginning, yeah. there's a lot of bad police and perhaps they are, you know, well, clearly they are getting through the net somehow. So maybe, you know, you have the situation where they go through um, the police training school and they can tick the boxes because you know what the boxes are. You say the right thing, you do the right thing, you write the right thing on your exams and so on. But then in the, the privacy of your, you know, your, your, your company, then you come out and, um, you know, you say whatever you say. But I think there's also the case that with social media now, it's much more obvious and much easier to see where people are saying these kind of things things because maybe before there was social media people would just say these things in the privacy of the pub and no one would record it and they wouldn't be writing it down but now you have people on whatsapp groups and they're texting each other and they're, they're saying you know these kind of things are written down and evidenced and this was the thing that happened after the, the sarah everard murder um, the, the person who, who I can't remember the name of the police officer who ki who killed her, but he was on a WhatsApp group. And then a couple of other people, they were writing, you know, really appalling things about women. So this was brought into public because the private messages were made public because they were written down. And that's something that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago because there just wasn't any social media. So I think that is... Um, an issue that means that people can see it and is more visible. Well said. Wayne Cousins is the guy's name, yeah, and he's banged uh, up yes. now for a long time. I suppose, whatever about the rights and wrongs of Baroness Casey's report, there are those who say that the report is masking something that is serious, and that is crime detection. It's abysmal, David. Up here in Manchester, they've just been taken out of special measures. It seems, and I don't want to make a stupid generalisation, but it seems some of our police forces have a real problem just being police officers and investigating crimes, right? I mean, I, I think that that is the systemic issue, you know, that's more important than looking at these other things, is that they're so focused on being politically correct, if you like, that they don't even go and investigate some real crimes like burglary and, of course, grooming gangs and rapes and homicides. But then someone, you know, they maybe speed, you know, they break the speed limit or they write something uh, on social media that someone complains about and they're all over it because it's an easy target and it's easy to go around someone's house, you know, who's written a comment on social media and harass them and then they get them through the courts and then that's a tick. Oh, yeah, we found someone, we solved a crime. It's much harder to solve real crime crimes like burglary and uh, criminal damage and assault. But that's what they should be focusing on, not what people say on the internet. And uh, that is the issue. And that's gone wrong almost everywhere in the country. But 
when there's a freedom rally, when there are people coming out for freedom or for to defend our culture, or perhaps, you know, in London, I saw people protesting against the vandalism of the statue of Winston Churchill, then the police come out and antagonize and harass patriots and freedom protesters. Um, it's completely the wrong way around from how it should be. Absolutely. David, just before we... Uh, uh, thanks for that, by the way. HeritagePartyOrg, the leader and founder of the Heritage Party, David uh, Curtin, has been our guest. David's a former member of the London Assembly and a former teacher. Anything special planned for the weekend in London this I, weekend? I am focused totally on the elections at the moment. In May. Uh, the local elections are on the 4th of May and the nomination period closes on the 4th of April. So I, I've been traveling so much at the moment. I was over in Northern Ireland last weekend. We had our first Heritage Party Northern Ireland conference. Um, I will be in Bournemouth uh, this Saturday uh, meeting some candidates there and uh, I'll be I'll be traveling up to the Northwest actually in um, April sometimes so I'm planning to visit there so maybe we should catch up and no, have, we a, will. have a drink when I'm in. If you're up in Manchester or Salford just give us a bell and I'll buy you a pint of steak. We've never met so uh, um, that would be my pleasure and my treat David. I should have asked you about voter ID. Do you want to give me 60 seconds on that? What are your thoughts? I think voter ID is a very good thing, but I think the bigger issue is postal voting. That's where the fraud takes place. And the Electoral Commission has got 16 areas it's identified, surprisingly enough, and more, or maybe coincidentally, areas with high ethnic minority groups in there. That's what needs to be stopped to stop fraud. There should only be postal voting for the armed services or people who are severely disabled. Um, so you need that as well as um, uh, ID for voting. Talk about that another time. Listen, thanks. Uh, well, enjoy the meetings and the work you'll be doing over the weekend. I'm sure we'll talk before you're in the Northwest. Thanks again for today, David, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Richie. Cheers. David Curtin, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party, heritageparty.org. Check him out there. Great to have him on because he has got different caps on, you see. Former teacher, of course. Former member of the London Assembly. Hopefully again, maybe. Uh, as far as he's concerned, hopefully again. I've got to be neutral. Of course, heritageparty.org. It is exactly three minutes to the top of the hour. You are with Thursday's Richie Allen Show. With me, Richie Allen, would you believe? The Richie Allen Show is the world's most popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. Now, a number of you were in touch with me there. Jean-Anne says that, um, according to a guard, that's a guard of Shia Corner, so that's the Irish police, okay? According to a guard of she knows, the amount of paperwork and bureaucracy defeats purpose. Spending too much time at their desks was what he said. That's an excellent comment, that. She says, same with medical profession. I used to meet police officers in Manchester City, in the city, in 2003, 2004. So I would have been DJing in Manchester nightclubs, a specific nightclub, right? And afterwards, you'd be coming out, you'd have stashed your CDs away, you might be waiting for a taxi, you might be waiting for a bus. And I'd have a chat with the police that were hanging around Oxford Street in Manchester. And it was only a few years after Blair. And they would say the same thing, that if a police officer who's on duty in the evening 
happens upon an incident or is called to deal with an incident, he or she will spend most of the rest of the shift writing that up because of the changes brought in by Blair's government. Previously, notes were taken and at the end of the shift, the notes would be collated and maybe the following day you might type something up. You had to go back to the station and you had to spend, according to police, I spoke with several hours at times. And that is a body, that is a police officer off shift then. Yeah, yeah. They don't solve crimes. I'm not going to get into that. It's I shouldn't get into that. 90 seconds to the top of the air. Thursday's programme. Thanks for your comments, by the way. You can leave a comment at richieallen.co.uk. It says, comment live up there on the menu bar. Hey, listen up. Um, at the end of next week, will be camera streaming in the studio. That's a fact. And by the middle of this coming week, I hope, it's looking like it, there will be a downloadable app for the programme. A downloadable app. So you'll be able to go to the App Store or your your Google Store and you'll be able to download the an app. So when you want to listen, you'll just have to press a button on your phone and you'll be able to listen. That's if you want to continue to listen. Jenny says, We're supposed to have to show identification to vote here in Ireland, but I've never been asked for any. I don't bother voting anymore, she says, in any case. That makes two of us, Jenny. I only voted in the EU referendum in 2016 for the laugh. I hadn't voted in any other democratic so-called election for since 2002. I just waltzed into the polling booth on Wilbraham Road in Manchester. I didn't have to show anything. I just had to give my name, Richard Allen. Here you are, go behind one of the screens, come back and pop your vote into the box. That was it, no ID needed at all. It could have been anybody. Chris says, amazingly for a politician, David Curtin actually talks about a lot of the things that only the likes of Mark Windows and Sandy Adams have been talking about in recent years. And Faisal tells me something is trending on Twitter there. And it's Paris, is it Faisal? It's kicking off in Paris, isn't it? The French President Emmanuel Macron forced through the changing the pension age from 62 to 64. How um, miserably undemocratic of him. It hasn't gone down with French people very well. And they're on the streets in Paris and they have been for several days. Thank you so much for that, Faisal. Join in with others on richieallen.co.uk and chat away. Diane says, I've had some contacts with Gardy. I try and avoid them, to be honest, says Diane. But in my experience, I've not had any transphobia. The ones who were assholes were assholes with everyone. How's that for equality, says Diane. Well, that's pretty much, that's equality. <laughs> They're assholes, but they don't discriminate, says Diane. Mark says, there is huge pushback, even for the normies. The pendulum will swing back the other way. Progress is slow. However, look at all the pushback despite all the media censorship. Can you imagine if we had real free speech? All of this would be over almost immediately. I've been thinking about that. Um, I'll talk about Twitter, maybe on Monday. And Musk's takeover. Encouraging people to buy a blue tick. And promising those who purchased a blue tick that they would not be subjected to shadow banning. 
and stuff like that. But it's happening anyway. I want to get into that maybe uh, next week. It's time for a tune. When we return, Sonia Elijah will be on the programme. It's coming up for two minutes past six. It is Thursday's Richie Allen Show on richieallen.co.uk. Tunein.tunein.com, yeah. You have the TuneIn app, but you won't need it anymore from next week. You'll have the Richie Allen app, I'm telling you. This is Joey Scarberry, and believe it or not... Yeah, I bet you're probably too young to remember the greatest American hero. You probably are. What a show. William, it's not William Katz. Was it William Katz, the uh, protagonist, the actor? The greatest American hero. Television shows were much better in the 1980s. That's the theme tune, Joey Scarberry. Now, we talked about this a week or so ago because it was very curious. The announcement that um, the public were told, weren't we, not to take certain cough and cold medicines. In fact, 20, maybe more than 20, but around about 20 of them, very common ones, were withdrawn from sale on the order of the MHRA here in the UK. That's the uh, medicines regulator, uh, regulator. So what's going on? Is there something else going on? Well, Sonia... Elijah thinks there might be. She's a brilliant uh, broadcaster and writer, is Sonia. She's got a terrific Substack account. We'll put links out to it later on. I'm sure you might have come across it before. It's uh, basically soniaelijah.substack.com. She's also written for The Conservative Woman, and we have a lot of time for The Conservative Woman. It's a great read. Sonia, welcome back. Lovely to have you back on. How are you? Hi, Richie. Thank you for having me back on. Oh, it's brilliant to have you on, and, and trust you, great stuff. We mentioned this story, but I, look, I, I broadcast. I, I don't write very much, and I don't have time to be digging down into things. That's what journalists like you do on our behalf. But I thought, what a strange story. Out of the blue, 20 of these very common medicines. And it scared people, funnily enough. I was observing the reaction to this on social media. And a lot of people take these medicines fairly regularly for, you know, antihistamines and all sorts of stuff like this. And this happened overnight. And you said there's something going on. What's going on? Well, it's what I wanted to um, highlight in my in my Substack piece. Um, it was also re- republished at the Brownstone Institute. They're a very good publication. Um, was that the, it's the, the, the double stand, standards here are really a s- staggering. And it's the sort of blatant hypocrisy uh, because they have pulled um so they said they because of this drug uh folcadine which is a cough suppressant that is found in in 20 of these common cough and cold medicines including night nurse so they they look they reviewed the post marketing safety data and based on that they're doing a uh, they've recalled it we've drawn it from the market as a precaution because of a very rare risk of anaphylaxis um anaphylaxis is a severe allergic reaction to a drug medication um and obviously it can be life-threatening uh, you can die from it um so they've classified so it's a class two medicines recall and they did that. They they announced that on the fourteenth of March. And um, I just thought, well, 
you know, I know having gone through so much of, you know, doing the research on the, particularly the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, they knew very early on, very, very early on, this is around the time the emergency use authorization was granted, uh, December 2020, that there was an identified risk of anaphylaxis for this vaccine. And they, so they've classified that, so they know this is a known risk. Um, I had the opportunity to review, to analyze the first ever periodic safety update report of the EU. And um, it's really, really shocking, all the damning data in that. That was published um, at the Children's Health Defense Europe. And anaphylaxis, again, was an important identified risk. And you have, um, and that covered a six month period, Richie, from December 2020 through to June 2021. And you had almost 4,000 cases, I think it was like 38, 3,827, almost 4,000 individuals were identified from the post authorization data. So this is again, I'm, I'm using that term because. The MHRA has supposedly reviewed the post-authorization data from this drug, Folkadine, and decided to withdraw this medicine, you know, to take it off the shelf. So this these cases were identified from the post-authorization data, and UK actually ranked the third highest. Um, the highest incidents happened in Japan, then the US, followed by the UK. And Looking at those numbers, Richie, women were seven times more uh, more affected by these cases of anaphylaxis. So you have to think: Well, is there a gender risk? Uh, is there a is there, is there a, a risk for females here uh, when it comes to uh, th that adverse event? Um, and when I analysed the uh, this is a Pfizer prepared document, almost over a year, uh, December twenty twenty one, I analysed this document that came through the uh, court ordered Pfizer data dump, uh, and they, that there was a three month there was a safety report covering just a three month period, very early on. This was from December twenty twenty through to the end of Feb in twenty twenty one, and again you've got. Many cases of anaphylaxis, women were eight times more affected. Um, also, what was very alarming is that for all the relevant adverse events, 98% of those were classified as serious. And if event is classified as serious, that means it can involve hospitalization. Um, so uh, we know there were 28 fatal events in that six-month period of this EU report. And 23 of those cases, uh, actually, so 23 of the um, 23 of the individuals uh, were from the pediatric group. This is of the cases who were affected. When it comes to the fatal outcomes, you, uh, there wasn't a lot of information that, that they, they're very misleading in the way they write these reports. All I could get was 28 events were fatal, but they didn't actually give me the case numbers for that. Um, but we know that young, you know, children were affected, adult age groups. Um, two thirds of all these cases, which were about 4,000 cases, there were no underlying health issues. So there were no comorbidities. 
So it's not like, oh, they just had, a, you know, they were suffering from allergies or that was an underlying health condition. Two thirds of those cases did not have any underlying health issues. Um, so also looking through the UK documents, so Regulation 174, which is information for UK healthcare professionals, we know that anaphylaxis is listed, it's saying, and that they said that there needs to be a close observation for at least 15 minutes following vaccination. And the reason why they added that is because, Richie, on the very first day that the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine was rolled out in the UK, the very first day, there were two reports of anaphylaxis and one report of a possible allergic reaction. And that was just on the first day. So um, it's 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 a known fact. This vaccine causes anaphylaxis, but for some reason it's been given a free pass because I guess it's an injectable vaccine and that that means it's OK. You know, they just don't seem to uh, kind of even acknowledge that there are safety risks. Um, but this is bombshells on you. I mean, this is actual bombshell stuff. We, we, we watch sorry, it. I mean, no, 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 no. This is I mean, this is this is it's great work, by the way. Well done. This, this is astounding. And it's, it's the sort of thing you would see on Netflix or on Amazon. You'll see a documentary about somebody who uncovered something like this years ago, you know, in Boston, finding the paedophile priests and stuff like that. This is as clear as day. They withdraw um, yeah. two dozen or just under two dozen medicines based on a very, 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 very remote possibility of anaphylaxis. They know the yes. Pfizer jab does it, not a whisper. June Rain must know this, the MHRA chief, must do. Well, well, I mean, you think that she, she, well, she of course she knows. I mean, it's an identified risk of anaphylaxis. It's in their reports. They, yeah. they know it's tied to anaphylaxis. But as we know from you bring up June Rain, she, she, uh, she said early on, you know, we're turning the MHRA, we're moving from the watchdog watchdog to the enabler. Yeah. And that, she, she said, it's it's on record. Um, so really, these regulatory agencies that are supposed to be promoting public health, protecting the public, are doing the exact opposite. Really, I mean, there is so much damning data here. Um, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> and I mean, you only have to look at the yellow card reporting system. We know what these uh, these uh, surveillance systems, yellow card in the UK, in America, North America, they have theirs. Um, uh, and um, EU have their own huge vigilance uh, surveillance reports. We know that there is a massive, uh, a, a huge magnitude of underreporting that has been going on. So you, when you look at those, I mean, those numbers that you see, you have to factor in the level of underreporting. So you've got to times that by a huge number to get the real, real numbers here. So before we get into that, Sonia, because we are going to have time for that, because I want to ask you that question: Is it one in eight hundred? Is it one in four hundred? But listen, I, um, I'm some man for one man, Sonia. It's just me here all by myself. But listen to this. This is June Rain, 40 seconds. I wonder if you would mind just explaining uh, to us for completeness of, uh, of the evidence that we're gathering, the importance of the role of the MHRA in allowing medical products and devices to, to come into uh, uh, use. 
Now you hear this she's in she's in front of a parliamentary committee about 18 months ago I grabbed this because I watched it live she was asked by a politician what is your role at the MHRA in terms of how medicines get passed into uh, will get passed and basically end up in, in uh, pharmacies. What's your role? Listen to June Rain. Um, Sonia has already said this, but listen. Our role is to, in a nutshell, enable access. But the uh, evidence that we require is that the benefits outweigh any risks. And therefore, we take every care scientifically and in terms of our robust procedures to ensure that these standards are met. But they obviously don't, Sonia. I mean, there it is right <laughs> she, there. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes me livid. She's absolutely lying there. It, it she, she does not live in reality. Uh, she's obviously living in her own world. Uh, and and uh, it, it, the idea, the fact that she says the benefits have to outweigh any of the risks with this vaccine, Richie, and also with Moderna and, and all of these MR, mRNA, uh, I'm calling out the mRNA-based vaccines, completely novel platform using completely experimental uh, products, ingredients, which I will talk a little bit about. Um, to say that there are that the you know the benefits of this uh, for ex- I'm just taking this for example these vaccines outweigh any is is ludicrous because there are so many risks tied to these products. Uh, I would not even call them a vaccine. They are a form of gene therapy uh, product because they you know they essentially hack into your cell. They have a genetic code in them. They have a modified messenger RNA that goes to the cell and entails that cell to literally become these sort of spike protein producing factories. And um, there are so many things that can go wrong in the body. And there's also a huge risk of autoimmune diseases. Um, I was writing on that recently um, because of the modified, I mean, I don't want to get too scientific, but for every uridine, they've replaced it with a synthetic N1 methylsudorine that the ribosomes, when they go to read that RNA transcript, get confused because they've never seen it. The body's never seen it before. And that can be produ- they can produce mutant proteins, not even the spike protein that they're supposed to encode for. So you have then a cascade of possible autoimmune diseases that can occur from that. I mean, it's just, I can go on and on with the level of, and obviously we know the myocarditis, the pericarditis, which is linked to these vaccines. So for her to come out and say, all these, but the benefits outweigh any of the risk is, I don't know. It's, Cer- it's, cer- certainly not yeah, with COVID jams. I, I interviewed a lady last night um, from the States, a lady called Christy Grace, who's a biotech specialist. And she's worked in a group of people in the last couple of years looking into the jobs. She was a great interviewee. She explained pretty much what, what, what you explained there about what the jobs actually do. But I'll tell you what was interesting about Christy, Sonia, was that several years ago, before any of us ever heard of COVID, she was working for a private company in biotech and they were inserting RNA into cells and, you know, basically experimenting with that. Yeah. And she saw that it could be very problematic for cells, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And you know what she said, which was fascinating? She said that when she learned that some of the COVID jabs would be would be mRNA jabs, she initially thought, well, that's wrong. That's they they shouldn't do that. This is um, 
obviously, you know, it's not properly tested and it's causing problems in in experiments, you know, for several years. But then, like a lot of people, she thought, well, surely they wouldn't be doing it unless they've ironed out those problems. That's what she thought until the injuries started mounting up and people started complaining. She was brilliant uh, on last night's programme, as you are tonight. This is vital because I think if only two people hear this and they were about to go and get booster number five and they think, well, I won't. I think we'll have done something. But, um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I also just wanted to briefly mention, so this is to do with the ingredients and this is what they don't talk about. You'll never hear this on any news, you know. These lipid nanoparticle ingredients, that's sort of, so you've got the mRNA, it's encased, it's encapsulated around this sort of lipid nanoparticle. Two of those compounds of the lipids are completely synthetic novel. One of them is ALC0159, which contains, this is really important, polyethylene glycol, which is PEG. That's the acronym. So polyethylene glycol, which is a known, it's known to cause anaphylaxis. I mean, in the ingredients. So they they knew from all along because you're injecting something that can trigger anaphylaxis. We're not meant to have that injected in our bodies. It's not meant to be there. Look, I know, we'll do this question now and then we'll leave it to one side. I know as a journalist, you want to deal with what you can prove and what's real and nothing else. I totally get that. I, you know, try and mostly succeed in that same approach. But you, as an intelligent woman, you must be wondering, Sonia, why? Why would they keep it going? Is it because they've gone so far now, they feel they can't turn back? Is it because of the pressure from the pharmaceutical companies? Is it something else? Do they not care? I mean, it must be keeping you up nights. Well, yes. I mean, like every kind of normal person that has empathy and, (laughs) you know, I mean, you think these people, they're just all sociopaths. But I mean, I think it's gone. They've gone so far down this road to to sort of backtrack and go, oh, sorry, guys, this was really dangerous. Sorry, you know, so many uh, X number of people have died and people have been hospitalized. People have been left in wheelchairs or whatever, you know. Sorry about that. We're just going to pull this off now. They've just put in all their eggs in one basket. They ran with these vaccines. They always said from the beginning, the only way out of this pandemic are the vaccines. And they just, that's how they did it. They fast-tracked all the trials. I mean, these, I mean, the trials itself were like, sham, you know, it's it's shambolic. Shambolic, uh, yeah. I've interviewed uh, a whistleblower, Brooke Jackson. She was uh, one of the directors of the um, uh, the Pfizer clinical trials, their subcontractor, Ventavia, in the States. And she was going on about how there's like no data integrity. There was so much going on that they shouldn't have been doing. So many mistakes, so many errors. I looked through so many of these clinical trial reports and I found many, many errors and anomalies. So... Uh, they haven't done the necessary safety studies for the mRNA gene th- gene therapy. Even the Pfizer uh, and Moderna in their Security Exchange Commission filings, right? They've classified their products as a gene therapy product, but they have not undergone the safety testing or those uh, to do uh, that 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 to do with a gene therapy product. They've just bypassed that, even though they're classified 
really not they're really not vaccines right so there's been no genotoxicity studies that have been done no carcinogenicity studies have been done no pharmacokinetic studies were done i mean i can go on and on like they just have not been done so this has been a mass experiment i would say i mean people have just been used as lab rats i i you know i mean there's no other way of, of putting that we, we are the the trials you will find sonia at uh, brownstone.org you'll find her at substack as well sonia elijah and it's s-o-n-i-a she's also on twitter find her on there and listen to this dear listener when you think it's great work, Sonia, I'm not blowing smoke at you. This is great work. They withdraw a dozen or more, 20 odd uh, medications that have been around for years over fears of anaphylaxis. The same people who made that decision, as Sonia has pointed out, they know that the Pfizer jab um, also presents a risk of anaphylaxis, but a greater risk than the cough and cold medicines. So why hasn't the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccines been withdrawn? Now, Sonia, tell me this. They, they did announce, didn't they, 8 or 10 or 12 weeks ago, kind of quietly, that they were basically closing down the COVID jab programme, didn't they? Except for very senior people and people with severe comorbidities. So they eventually said that from now on in, people who've had COVID jabs, if you're under 70 and healthy, they won't be offered another one. Is that they're kind of quietly trying to just brush it under the carpet? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're so good at doing that, aren't they? Uh, they did the same with the um, the vaccine to the youngest, the younger age groups, I think, um, the, the under 12s. They sort of then backtracked and go, you know, only for children that are really, you know, really immune compromised. And, and they did that very quietly, very under the carpet. You wouldn't have even realized until unless you were doing the research, you wouldn't have even known about that. Um, they're exactly the same thing they're doing here. They're slightly just, you know, just closing the, you know, just backing, you know, backing out of the room in a very quiet way. But I mean, it's it's just the fact that they just have not just halted it completely and they're even still offering it, right, is is just, you know, one of the greatest crimes against humanity. Tell me this, Anya, you... You will be firing off emails to everybody, due diligence, ethical journalism. Do you still remain shocked at the lack of response, the ignoring? I mean, what happens? You fire off an email to the MHRA or to the Department of Health uh, to say, look, look at this evidence here. I'd like a response, please. What happens? And I mean, explain this for for our listeners, because some of them just won't know. Yeah, I mean, you 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 get you hear crickets, right? I mean, yeah. actually, the only regulatory agency that has ever come back to me, and I've contacted many, and obviously, you know, the pharmaceutical companies themselves as well, um, has been the European Medicines Agency. They've been the only ones that sort of have come back and and try to give a response, um, and and but the others have just been completely um, just yeah silence, um, and um, so I mean, it's it's yeah. Now, that's basically what happens. You you don't you get ignored. And what about? Um, I never asked this. I I purposely don't ask this, but I'll ask you. And what about the nonsense? Then the personal attacks, which can be. I mean, you're a big girl, and you've got thick skin. I reckon from. I mean, it's the second time we've spoken, but I, I I follow you on Twitter, so I can see that. But um, it's a bit much, isn't it, to be taking personal attacks for just putting factual information into the public domain? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, you get those odd, weird comments from, you know, this is like, I'm talking about Twitter. 
and they're just I mean they're literally just attack I mean it I laugh because it's just ridiculous and I do never engage I just well, I'm not wasting my time to explain to I mean all they could be bots I mean you've no idea even if it's a real person behind that account right um so um yeah I just I just ignore it and actually in a way I do expect because what I'm writing and what I'm saying is you know it, it's it's the truth right I'm I'm this is their own I always quote I always use the data from their own documents right I'm not making this up this is all public in the public domain or that have been released via Freedom of Information Act uh, so um, it's the truth right it's their own data that's very damning and uh, if if you know to me I just ignore. Uh, you know, I ignore the attacks ignore because the I think nonsense. obviously I've done something good in a way. I mean, I, I welcome them because <laughs> it means I'm doing something right. That's a good point. And how do you feel before we come back to the injuries and I'm hearing one in 800 serious adverse events and other doctor has said one in 400 before we come back uh, back to that. When you see that, excuse me for characterising him thus, but that straw-haired goon in the Privileges Committee yesterday faffing about about whether or not parties were socially distanced how frustrating is that when that's a nonsense compared to the big story which is these jabs are still hurting people and will continue when you see that idiot yesterday do you even watch that or do you just ignore yes, it no, i did i watched i watched the sort of highlights of that and it was just yeah i mean it's it's just really uh, yeah, I mean, it is. It's a charade. It's it's to distract people. Really, it's a big distraction. And and uh, because really, heads should roll, shouldn't they, Richie? For yeah. for allowing for the regulators to allow this experimental, dangerous product, and to roll it out to young children, to roll it out to pregnant mothers. I mean, it's you've got to think about that. You know, l- look at what's gone on. Let's do three or four comments. Um... RichieAllen.co.uk comment live. We've had several hundred comments since coming on air and plenty on this. Uh, Steve is backing you up, sharing information on the website there about mRNA horrors. Mark says he got an NHS text telling him he could book for a booster. That was only recently. I never had the jab in the first place, says Mark. Why are they still sending out these messages? I thought they were done with it. Well, so did we. We thought that they'd basically prevented Sorry that they'd scaled back and, and ended the programme. Chris says, Richie, I worked in health and social care for 14 years. The first wave of the scam was the old people being murdered in care homes. Witnessed it with my own eyes. This is the truth that is being uh, suppressed. Uh, thanks so much for that, uh, Chris, there. Uh, Tom says, somebody called Mike Eden uh, takes a very different view on the spike protein theory. I wouldn't know that because I don't know Um, much of what Mike Eden has been saying but thanks for that Tom um, let's have a look let's scroll on there's been so many of these Um, Oreo says Richie the best remedy for cough problems is laxatives apparently that's an old gag thanks for that uh, Oreo Uh, the only cough medicine is Jägermeister says David very good (laughs) let's scroll on down Wendy says uh, let's scroll on down there's so many of these Um, yeah and quite a number of these are dealing with what is the best guess with respect to how many are being seriously hurt? I've read one in eight hundred, one in four hundred. Nobody's on this more than you, Sonia. What 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 do we think the real numbers? Serious adverse events. What are we talking? You know what? It's there's so many levels to that because you can look at short term, right? 
but then nobody knows the long-term safety aspects of this so you could be fine now and I don't want to be there scaring people but I'm just saying you could be fine now but then years down the line something happened to you but what is so damning is that even in the short term we're seeing uh increase in the even even cancers so people that have been free have maybe suffered from cancer have been free from it and all of a sudden it comes back in a very virulent form, in a very aggressive form, and they die. You know, so that's going on. Very weird, weird, unusual cancers are coming up. Um, you've got the strokes. You've got the cardiac arrests. Obviously, you've got the pericarditis and myocarditis going on. You have um, uh, women suffering from abnormal uh, menstru uh, men menstrual disorders. I've covered a lot on that. Uh, and... and um, you have people that women have gone through the menopause, but then all of a sudden they're 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 sort of having uh, episodes of bleeding. Um, and then the the EU one of the EU that safety report I did analyze. There was a section on menstrual disorders, and they had the audacity to say this is the level of sort of patronizing and gaslighting that's going on. They said, oh, women are getting affected. They're you know having they, they acknowledge they actually do acknowledge there are menstrual disorders happening, but they're getting it because they're stressed out because they they were anxious about the pandemic, and that's why. So they literally conclude. The reason why you're getting this is because you were stressed out because of the pandemic. Tell me this, Sonia. This mm. came up on a number of programmes today, but the, the more conservative media like Talk TV, there is a fear among some that in a couple of years' time, if we are told of the discovery of a new pathogen which is dangerous, that people would, you know, do as they were told once more, that they would acquiesce and say, okay, we will go back into lockdown and we will wait for the next available job. Now, I don't want to believe that. What's your considered opinion on that? I mean, I think they're going to have a much harder time the second, second round, you know, to just pull the wool over the eyes of the public. I like to think that you know the the public. Then, of course, they're not stupid. They they uh, un unless obviously they just listen to the BBC and that's the all the information they get is just from the BBC. Then you know you're going to get hoodwinked. But if your eyes are open and you have a critical way of thinking, then I don't think people are going to be. I really don't think people are going to be. Um, scared to that level to how they were that level of fear that they really ramped up um it back in 2020 so i think they'll have a tough time in locking people down again um on the basis of a jab the on them. yeah yeah tell I me think, this um, sorry, sorry to interrupt you sonia tell me this because I, do, I don't want to forget to ask you this we haven't spoken since matt hancock's whatsapp messages were leaked to the telegraph by isabel oakshot I, nothing in the messages really surprised me and I'm a bit dubious about whether Oakshot really achieved anything. And then mm. I think, no, you're wrong, Richie, because maybe a lot of people who were duped by this, Sonia, they might look at it and go, wow, they were laughing behind the scenes about scaring us and stuff like that and why were they doing that? So maybe something might come out of it. What was your reaction when you read these messages that came out? I mean, you know what? My first reaction was sort of that of, instant anger in the sense of we already knew this because yeah. I was writing the conservative woman and many of the writers, not just myself, uh, were writing about this uh, early on. 
uh, how, I mean, I did a three-part piece, uh, one of my early pieces in 2021, around March 2021, um, on uh, um, uh, Sage's, Sage's coup like the taking basic how sage has taken over the country these these sort of scientific experts and how they've used um you know all these behavioral scientists using fear and it's been a psyop you know literally psychological warfare using fear weaponizing fear to get the public to do what you want right so they that was that was you know i was writing that on that for for a, a long time before these whatsapp messages got leaked so of course i wasn't surprised so it was i don't know i think it's a bit of a distraction i mean maybe yeah. i'm a bit skeptical i think is this just a bit of a distraction again um are they using him as a scapegoat maybe possibly i i don't why are they allowed now you say i always think why now why now here's a here's something this is not my i, I wish this was my theory but um somebody suggested and I, I think they might be onto something if governments are going to in lockstep hand to the world health organization the reins when it comes to dealing with future pandemics well one way you could do that at least in this country is make the politicians look like a bunch of idiots and a bunch of um, messers and you know spoofers basically and yeah. say well look at these guys look at the mess they made of it let's just give the world health organization and that's a i mean this is the thing we should all fear right that the world health organization super national body that it becomes the basically the arbiter of how we approach health problems in the future and that's terrifying for me um it is it is very terrifying and even more terrifying because of I think as of the third quarter of 2023, guess who is becoming their chief scientist? Oh yes, the, oh your man, um, Jeremy yeah, Farrar, Jeremy, no? Jeremy Farrar, the Jeremy, director yeah, of the Welcome, yeah, yeah. Uh, Welcome Trust, and he has been so embroiled in those on these those That's emails right. with Fauci and the lab leak and all of that. So you know, I mean, yeah, it's it'd be scary times when if that ever that pan, you know, if 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 the WHO were to just supersede our, our sovereignty, country's sovereignties, and just say, like, you've got to lock down or you've got to give out, roll out this jab. You know, I mean, it, it is, it's very concerning. Yeah. Sonia Elijah is our guest. We've got Sonia just for another few minutes. It's great to have her on and giving us her time today. Uh, do find her at uh, Brownstone. Uh, the, the link is brownstone.org. You'll also find her at soniaelijah.substack.com and she's on Twitter too. And Sonia's S-O-N-I-A. Elijah, you can spell, find her, follow her. Many of you are all already. It's it's um, really important stuff and important yeah. work, this. It really I, I, is. I just also wanted to mention, you, they can also, I write uh, a lot for Trial Site News so they can find me on Trial Site News. That's a really excellent um, uh, platform for medical research news. Um, and then, yeah, my Twitter handle is at Sonia underscore Elijah. Um, and of course, you know, it'd be great if people subscribe to my Substack. Everything is free on my Substack. I don't, you know, it's all free. There's no paywall. Um, and, um, you know, I believe it's it's all for the public, right? I mean, every, I think whatever I write on is it's for the public interest. People need to know. Well, look, I've been reading it since I met you and um, I can't fault it. It's fact-based journalism, well-written and the, the sources are always there. And as you said yourself earlier on, you use the company's own data to, to basically hang them out to dry yep. with. It's, with you know, with, 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 there's a lot to be said um, for that. I, uh, I'll, tell you where, I'll tell you where I am. I, I, 
I'm optimistic at the moment. I, I think, well, I agree with something you said a few minutes ago. I think if they tried this again in a couple of years, far less people will go along and certainly yeah. far less people will will take a jab. And and that gives me a little bit of hope, Sonia. It really does. And it's yeah. down to people like yourself, you know, breaking away from um, from mainstream and having the courage to write stuff and to put stuff out there and do interviews and podcasts. But yeah, I think people will be far far less likely to be duped uh, by it. The, the, the thing I wanted to speak with you for the, for the final few minutes we have is I'm convinced, right, I can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but that what we've seen in the last couple of years isn't something in isolation, that it's also linked into certain other agendas that we see you know, the climate change agenda. Now, you might not agree with me, and that's fair enough, and that's good. It's good to have a dissent, of course. I'm not convinced that anthropogenic climate change is, is a real thing. The solutions mm. are incredibly dr- draconian. They're very similar to the COVID solutions. So so I, I think there is some network of, of people, whether it's the, the, the World Economic Forum, whether it's... Um, you know, philanthropic, even though they're not really billionaires like Gates and others. But somebody or someone desires to take us down a path where life would be very controlled and very much observed at all times. Do you have sympathy with that theory yourself? What, what do you think when you hear that? Um, I mean, I w- if you sort of step back and look, you know, I see it as, you know, we have we, um, always when you look to the future, you should always look back at the past. You know, I think that history tells us so much. Right. When we just look back in history and there's always been rise and falls of empires. Right. And I see that what we're going through sort of this this rise of this sort of authoritarian style empire that's trying to come out of this where people need to be controlled uh, where freedoms are curbed, where there's that lack of sovereignty and all of that lack of bodily and autonomy. I mean, you think, you know, um, so there's this sort of shift that's happening. And that's what I've noticed. And um, and then, uh, yes, if you look at climate change and all they're very draconian and you've got to be got a net zero and all of that and all of that. I mean, it's just astounding, this sort of clamping down on people's freedoms and and making life really hard for the everyday person i mean if you think about it um and these policies have not been really thought through it's just extremely short term um and if you think about climate change you would look at just go back thousands of there's always been climate change right i mean we were from the ice age to the you know i mean climate change has always gone on and and just to blame on carbon dioxide the natural gas that we breathe out is just is is really astounding the way i'm like you sonia i'm i'm like you i'm open to be proven wrong and i i don't i'm not a kind of a put your head in the sand type of a guy but i've been doing I've been a journalist since 1998, mainstream, national, the lot. And even then I didn't buy it. And I'm if somebody can, can show me the proof, but when I go looking and digging, all I find is evidence to the contrary, that this is not happening, that it's happened many, many, many times, long predating the Industrial Revolution. And of course, just like you so eloquently um, spoke of there, it's the horrendously awful draconian, you know, um, surveillance state solutions that they offer which are all very yes. familiar. This is this is my problem with it. Yes, yes. No, I agree with you there. I agree with you. It's yeah. this sort of this this again this rise of authoritarian style kind of, you know, governments or, or or these policies that are being put forward 
and they're all agreeing to it lockstep. Lockstep, yeah. Every German. I mean, you look at all the countries. They're all. I mean, just you just think about that mantra. They all said this is during lockdowns. Build back better. Yeah. I mean, they all repeated that as their mantra. Build back better. Build back better. I mean, really, what you know? I mean, it's. We know what they want to build. <laughs> I mean, and it's not going to be better. And we don't want to live in it. Let me thank you for giving us your time today. Thanks for coming back. You're welcome back anytime, Sonia. Thank you I, so much. No, Rich. I don't endorse very much, as my listeners know, because you get burned when you endorse, but it's excellent writing. Um, you'll find, Sonia, Trial Site News, uh, The Conservative Woman. I've already mentioned brownstone.org, the Substack account. Follow her on Twitter for more. She tweets regularly and always interesting and important information. Listen, have a great weekend and don't be a stranger. You're welcome back, as I said, anytime. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much. God bless you, Richie. Thank you. And you too, Sonia Elijah, investigative journalist and broadcaster, live on Thursday's programme. If you haven't checked her out before, check her out now. The time is exactly 15 and one half minutes to the top of the hour. You are, of course, with your Richie Allen show. Just don't like it. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Welcome back and thanks for all of your comments during the programme. They mean a lot to me, by the way. I really appreciate it. Wayne says he doesn't believe these poisons were just produced overnight or that the consequences of them were not known about in advance. I listened to a list of the effects they were going to cause being read out prior to them being rolled out. Like the lockdowns, if we want to see the real reasons for the jabs, I believe we need to look no further than the consequences. And there will be many listening to this who will agree with that. Thank you for that comment there. Chris Morell doesn't believe in the lab leak. Um, and then he mentions Polly St. George. But you know what it is, Chris? And, and I know you'll take this in the spirit in which it's meant. Because I'm not really aiming this at you. We live in a very weird world. We really do. In more ways than one. I get this all the time. And again, Chris, I'm not aiming this at you. Oh, Richie, um, such and such... Uh, right, Richie, a certain theory is a load of bollocks. And I say, is it? Why? And then somebody will throw some researcher at me or somebody who's got a podcast at me. It doesn't work. I mean, I might very well check out Polly St. George. I might not because I don't have the time. But the great majority of people would just dismiss that out of hand. You know, as to how COVID came to be, if COVID came to be, because I'm open-minded, I don't know. Chris, I've heard the lab leak theories, the gain-of-function research, Fauci, all of that. I just don't know. I don't know. I tend not to get too bogged down with it because... It isn't anything I can really engage the perplexed in. The perplexed are people who feel oppressed, like they feel there's something really wrong. You know what I mean, Chris? They really know something is wrong. But these are people who have always gotten their information from the, the historical sources. So they haven't a clue at, um, for example, what Sonia told us. I mean, this is astonishing. They take 20 cold and flu medicines off the shelves that have been around for years because of a very, very rare risk of anaphylaxis. They admit themselves that the COVID jabs, particularly the Pfizer-BioNTech jab, um, comes with a risk of anaphylaxis, but it remains in circulation. 
These are the things I'd like to raise awareness of. As to how COVID came into being, I don't know. Again, there will be people listening to this programme who don't believe that COVID exists. And that's fair enough too. Tom says if they try it again, Richie, in a few years, and we have central bank digital currencies, basically no cash, and digital IDs, and 15-minute cities, how could the masses refuse to comply? It's a good point, Tom. Colin, on that point, says, I wish I had the same faith as to whether people would fall for it again. I think most have fallen asleep again and would, in spite of all that has come out, they would trust the government again, unfortunately. Colin, you might well be right. I think what I was saying is, I think less people would be inclined to go and get the jabs, I think. I think that has penetrated the information about vaccine injuries. I think is penetrating somewhat. Have you any proof, Reggie? No, absolutely none. It's anecdotal. You know, we've met people. I've mentioned that my better half has befriended a lady, a nice, very nice lady who um, has a dog and they meet up and they have a chat. And the lady has been injured by a COVID jab. And previously, she would have never suspected her government or or the Department of Health or pharmaceutical companies. She would never have worried about them. Now she's very, very worried about them. And she'll be speaking to people who would have been like, like, like herself, trusting in authority. So I think it's permeating. It's getting out there. Penetrating, maybe. Um, but, but Colin, you might very well be right. Maybe they'll queue up again. Isabel says, Christy mentioned yesterday that her friend had found out that the COVID jab contained some DNA. What's Sonia's opinion? Well, Sonia is not a biologist or a biochemist. I didn't see that uh, point, but uh, maybe she would have an opinion on it. We might ask the next time she's on. Thank you, Isabel. Brenda says, Eddie Izzard, in brackets, purports to be a comedian, today announced his one-woman show on Lorraine Kelly. She just couldn't disguise her glee. What a drag, says Brenda. I mean, it is absolutely... It's not surrealism. It's not farce even. We don't have, I don't think, we haven't yet invented a word to describe the the absolute silliness and, yeah, otherworldly feeling when you have big, hairy men like Eddie Izzard announcing a one-woman show and changing his pronouns. It's ridiculous. And I, I know there will be people listening to the programme and it'll be their first time. I might, it, it might be. Please believe me. I don't have a bigoted bone in my body. I am the ultimate old lefty. Live and let live. I mean it. I couldn't mean it anymore. Get on with your life. I'll get on with mine. I will respect how you live your life so long as it doesn't impose on me. And how could it impose on me if a man chooses to live as a woman and asks you to refer to him as by, by a female name? Of course. You've asked me nicely. It does me no harm whatsoever. Um... I don't have a bigoted bone in my body, but it's just madness, isn't it? Madness in New York that a bloke can win the women's cycling race. You know? 
a guy in his mid-40s beating women in their late teens, early 20s. Madness that USA Today can name a man as one of the women of the year. It's just madness. And I have no dictionary, I have no vocabulary to describe it. And we're great. The Irish are great, aren't we, at extrapolating from all of the madness, you know, and and then and then describing it in our unique Irish way, pulling adjectives out of the atmosphere almost. I can't find the language to describe it. That we are being asked to believe that black is white and that blue is in fact actually purple. No, no, you must believe that this bloke was born in the wrong body and really is a woman and therefore must be, you know, given access to spaces reserved exclusively for women. And not agreeing with that is an indication that you are a hateful old bollocks and something needs to be done about you. Yeah, yeah, it's actually quite mad. So it is. Let me just drag a tune in there so I don't forget um, for later on. I suppose it's a good time for me to mention that I'm on air on Sunday morning. That's Sunday morning at 10 o'clock UK time with um, one of my favourite things in the whole wide world. And I do mean that. It's uh, Sunday morning melodies. Two hours of music and stories. Just you, just me. Bit of crack. Easy listening Sunday morning. Yeah, Sunday at 10. Do tune in if it's your thing. Do tune in. Lovely. And Vivisection says, I've asked this person to change their handle and just put Steve or Mary. If you don't do it by tomorrow, I'm deleting your account. I'm not really, I'm only joking. Um, This person says, surely it's obvious by now that Convid was brought in for the jabs, not the other way around. They had jabs sitting in warehouses well before 2020, is that person's opinion. Is there any actual proof that they had jabs lying around in warehouses? Any photographic or documentary evidence, I wonder. Um, I'm not being sarcastic, by the way. I'm genuinely asking for a friend. Is there any evidence that the jabs were already there? You kind of think they might have been, you know? I mean, from... When did they begin to talk about getting a jab? I suppose it was the end of March, early April 2020. And then they had them ready in December. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'd have to see some pretty hard evidence before I would um, agree with that. But you never know. You just never, never, never know. Good conversation going on there on richieallen.co.uk. It's good to see. It warms the cockles of me heart, so it does. You've got to, you know, not you, you can do whatever you want. But when you produce programmes like this, you've got to fastidiously adhere to a principle of you can't declare something to be true unless there is definitive, irrefutable proof said thing is in fact true. That's the principle. I will talk about anything. I'll, I'll discuss anything at all, no problems. But I, I, I won't say, well, yeah, I agree with that. And that's true, because I just don't know. We've talked about everything and anything on this programme over the years. We've talked about directed energy weapons. No proof. There's no proof these things exist. They might do. 
and I'm open-minded to the idea they might do. And I kind of think they probably do do, 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 because whatever they, whatever the military is in use of in 2023, whatever they show at their expos, you know, these massive BAE systems and Hall- not Halliburton, um, the other one. Oh, geez, I can't think of the name of it now. Big American one. Um, it'll come to me in a minute. So you go to these expos, you see these trade shows, these weapons, whatever they put out there for the general public to see in the brochures, they're probably really 20 years ahead of that. I've always known this. This has been communicated to me by people who used to work for weapons manufacturing companies. Whatever they show you, Richie, in their brochures, they've got probably 20 years ahead of that that they're not showing you. I can buy that too. So directed energy weapons, yeah. But proof, like, you know. The proof. Area 51. The proof. I want to see proof. And that's the thing that's the most frustrating. It's probably probably the same for you. The most frustrating thing, isn't it? Is suspecting. Like, to your bones, suspecting certain things are true, but not having definitive proof. Like, I believe there is a geoengineering program. I believe I can see it with my own eyes. But I don't have any absolute smoking gun proof. Which is annoying. Because, as I said, I'm convinced it's happening. But anyway, thank you so much to my guests, to David Curtin, of course, heritageparty.org, and to the broadcast journalist, Sonia Elijah. Thank you, Sonia. You have a fantastic weekend. Look after yourselves and one another. And we'll speak on Sunday at 10 a.m. UK time, if it's your thing. If it's not, Monday at 5. Closing out with KT Tunstall then. Bye from me. Bye.